Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Welcome, welcome back everybody. We are back. It feels good to be back. We have been uh, maybe MIA, if you will, for, I don't know, approximately maybe six weeks or something like that, but um, I'm sure our host has uh, plenty of valid reasons and excuses as to why we couldn't be with you all during this time, Uh, but needless to say, we're back and we've got an exciting episode for you. It's actually very fitting with uh, things that have currently gone on uh, socially uh, in a number of ways. So both our topic for today and as well as uh, uh, current events. Uh, Mr. Host, how are we feeling being back back in the saddle? Feeling pretty good, um, although I have to disagree that it has not been six weeks. I think it's five weeks. <laughs> okay, all right, all right, fair enough. Um. Uh. So, ready to rock and roll. All right, beautiful. Well, that's exactly what we're going to do. So, yeah, we've got an exciting topic on board for you guys, uh, for anybody calling in. Uh, Everybody knows who's listened to the show over the years that uh, both the host and I are very, very big sports fans. And so, I don't actually believe in our time doing uh, the radio show other than just little snippets before the topic or throughout uh, little analogies that we might make or metaphors that we might use that we've actually dedicated a whole topic to um, what it is we're going to do today. I'll still, I'll keep them hanging, uh, you know, in suspense a little bit. We won't fully disclose it, but so I think it's going to be a new one and a fresh one that should be exciting. Uh, but in the interim, there are some topics that we need to cover before we dive into it. And so let's get to our first. Uh, as some of you all out there may have heard, it's actually a very, very big deal and it's affecting markets everywhere. Uh, but Boeing has had one of their newer jets that, that has come out, um, been distributed, and is being used by several airlines grounded um, by both Canada and the U.S. Canada was the first to ground them. 
And then uh, our president, Mr. Donald Trump, came out and made an announcement that he was going to ground them for North America. As everybody knows, our host is a huge aviation uh, expert and enthusiast. And so I'm sure you've got a hot take, uh, Mr. Host, on the 737-800 MAX and it's grounding. Why don't you educate us a little bit about what the hell is going on with that thing? Certainly. First, uh, I'd like to say I am not an expert, and I believe we even have a sound clip for that one. But uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we do indeed. Well, uh, allow me to proclaim you the expert. You don't need to proclaim okay. it yourself. Right. Um, yeah. So the seven thirty seven period. Not not even this particular model. The seven thirty. What do you mean? I'm not an expert. <laughs> is the most popular plane in the whole wide world. Um, and when they say that, you got to be careful. You got to listen to those words. They say the most popular plane um, doesn't all, doesn't mean it's the most uh, the like it has the highest selling record. I believe um, that's the Airbus A320 that has outsold over time the 737 but more people have the 737 because they've held on to them so they you know what i'm saying so the 737 came out in like the 60s okay anyway this particular plane and, and i have been talking back and forth online with people in the various groups pilots and whatnot that i frequent um and there's mixed mixed opinions on it. Uh, okay. some, pilot, some pilots say, hey, there's 350 of them worldwide right now. There's 50 in the U.S., which is not a lot. Okay? And we've had two accidents of them. And so what's abnormal? What's abnormal is A, an accident. B, two accidents with the same exact model. C, two accidents with the same exact model within four to five months of each other, and D, two accidents involving the same model within four to five months of each other of a fairly brand new model. I say fairly is that it was first sold in 2017. That's the first time it was handed over to an airline, 2017. So it's been in service for going on a couple of years. Right, right. Um, so some of them say, pilots say, you know, we, we were, you know, we were told that the characteristics of the aircraft are the same in terms of the previous versions of the 737. And when certain things happen, the fix for it in flight is the same as the previous models. So if they experience what they call a runaway stabilizer or runaway elevator or those little small wings in the back of the tail, um, the fix for that is the same as if you, when you a brand new 737 Max 8, when it has that issue with the MCAS system pitching the nose down. So that's how you get out of it. So the only okay. question yeah. out there is, oh, the flip side is there are some who are saying, hey, we weren't told about that. Uh, we weren't told Can that. I'm sorry to interrupt. Can I add, because you went through a list of A through D about the, uh, you know, piling one coincidence on top of the other. Right. Uh, can I add an E to that list? Yeah. And I'll see if I can recall, recite your whole list. So uh, the head scratcher that two 
planes of the same – okay, so the accident was number one with two planes of the same model number two occurring within you know five to six months of each other, number three, with them being fairly new models, number four. And number five, which actually was the biggest head-scratcher to me, was that their ways, right? Like within the first ten minutes of takeoff and both seem to have what you're talking about now, kind of vertical stabilization issues prior to the crash. But but the idea that it's not like one crashed mid-flight and the other crashed during takeoff where you could say, oh, maybe that was, you know, the pilot one way or the other, uh, it, it, that they both crashed basically shortly after taking off. They, they both crashed in the same way. I'd like to add that to the list it's, of uh, yes. the list of conspiracies and coincidences. Yes. If I was a betting man, and I am not, if I would bet that when all is said and done, it's going to be a 50% or some percentage thereof of pilot error versus uh, machine issue, mechanical issue, i.e. software um, issue with the plane. And on the pilot error side is probably where you're going to get the biggest uh um, scandal, if you will, because Boeing is saying we notified the airlines of this system and what the workaround is if they experience any runaway elevator or runaway stabilizer. And, you know, the, the, the airlines initially pushed back, but they've been very quiet since then because, logically speaking, it is in, I, I would have a hard time believing that an airline who when they get when they get the plane handed over to them it doesn't immediately go into service they get to do their own quote unquote walkthrough to make sure every single system on that plane is working before they release the 135 million dollars to Boeing now and now how do you know that they're able to do that where where are you getting that information from oh i've they they i've seen it they've had documentaries on on tv Showing you the whole process of, of, you know, them creating an aircraft through the purchasing process, the testing process. What happens when the airline takes physical possession of the aircraft? What happens then? And then what happens? And then when does it actually go into revenue service, where you can fly, take? Care what do you mean I'm not an expert? <laughs> <laughs> sounds like sounds like we're talking to an expert folks because he, he's got a covered a to z anyway all right so so carry on the airlines they have a chance to like you were saying they have a chance to test it out themselves and things of this Go nature with a, with a fine tooth comb before you hand over the 135 million dollars which is what this yeah. plane costs right about and they do that with every aircraft so this is after boeing has done all its flight testing and all the testing they're required to do blah 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 to get the plane certified United then sends their pilots and their people to Boeing to do some stuff on-site at Boeing. And then they then send their pilots to pick up the aircraft and fly to wherever, Chicago, wherever their home base is. And that's where they then do their own whatever it is that they do to say, okay, everything seems to be working. We got the interior configuration we want. All the, you know, the software is working fine, blah, blah, blah. And then they, you know, Go the lawyers. Then the lawyers get working, go into the room and uh, say, "Okay, come up with that 135 million before they actually give them the ceremonial key. There's really no key, but they get a ceremonial key, and now now they own it. Okay. So 
I have a hard time believing that the Boeing did not tell the airlines about the MCAS system and what they have to do if something ever happens with it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So training in regards to an aircraft is the responsibility of the airlines. So that's why I say when all is said and done, it's going to be a split fault given. And, you know, right now it's all about liability protection. You know, how much are we liable? Boeing's going to have some liability. The airlines are going to have some liability. Sure. So right now it's all that positioning to see how much, you know, liability they're each going to have. But it's probably going to end up being 50-50. Right. Pilot error error still falls on the airline. Okay. So, uh... What was I going to ask? So as far as airline liability, say, I believe, and I'm not sure about the numbers, and maybe you know, but that both of these airlines that experienced this uh, this crash are relatively small airlines, you know? So if they're on the hook for a, a large no. percentage of whatever that liability is, could that not put them under? Not necessarily, but Ethiopian Air is not a small airline. They're the number okay. one airline on the African continent. Um, they're the only airline on the continent that serves every country on the continent. Okay. Um, and, and they're the airline that's used by, you know, uh, business people, uh, United Nations people to travel in the, you know, in, in, on the continent. Sure. Um, one thing I found out about Ethiopian airlines, they were, they started in the early sixties, I believe. And, TWA is what helped start them. They went over to the, to Africa and kind of showed them how to how to do it, how to get it done, and blah blah blah. So they have a very robust system in place of safety and all that whole nine yards. So that's why that's why they're the number one airline in Africa. Yeah. So they're okay. not really they're not like a small rinky dink budget airline like Lion Air is. You know, okay. Lion Air had a known. They were known in in that part of the world for not having the best safety standards. So, interesting. So, the other thing that they brought up, which was also interesting, is that, you know, the experience of the pilots play a role in things like that, too. Because if if all of a sudden you're you're, you're taking off and you're 1,000, 2,000 feet up, which is not a lot you know, height, and you're experiencing this problem with the aircraft, you know, they don't know how an inexperienced captain would respond versus someone who's got, you know, 25, 30 years would respond. Now, I don't know the age of the captain or the flight crew of the Lion Air, but of the Ethiopian Air, the captain was only 29 years old. Now, that doesn't mean that he wasn't a fantastic pilot. I'm just saying that nothing substitutes for experience, meaning that you've got so many years, you've seen almost everything. Right, so right, right. Of, so your responses are kind of instinctive all, almost at this point in time um, versus, you know, you're a, you're, a, um, you're a hotshot pilot, a young pilot, hotshot pilot, very skilled pilot, you know, very uh, a talented pilot. And as a result of all of those attributes, you've been able to, climb up that ladder and, you know, and become a captain of the 737 fleet uh, at a young age, um, in your 20s still, and, uh, you know, what have you. But you haven't seen a lot in that time. 
Okay. So. Yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense. That's why I always feel. Um, I think I thought this about Sully when we all know about the uh, the miracle on the Hudson. Um, but generally speaking, pilots who have like uh, many pilots uh, have past military experience. Right. And that always, at least for me, just as a, you know, a bystander who doesn't know much about it, just instills a little bit of confidence, whether that's false confidence or not. Just because I feel like if you have flown, say, you know, military aircraft um, for for some branch of the military, you know, there's no more high pressure situation in my mind than that. And so if you can handle that, then commercial should be a, a breeze for you. Yeah, what I what I like about having a military pilot as military is that is that they've been trained very well, and so moving over then to the civilian market and flying commercially with passengers, you know they have a background, their training background is very very robust, um, and then of course, you know, with military planes, they've you know they've experienced all kinds of craziness uh, that they've been able to uh, figure out, you know, especially those guys that are in the Navy. You know, Navy pilots. I mean, if you can land on an aircraft carrier and pitch black in the middle of the ocean with the, yeah. the, the <laughs> aircraft exactly. carrier bucking back and forth, then yeah. you can fly. A, you can fly a seven thirty-seven. Exactly right. Exactly. That's that's how I've always kind of felt about that one too. Um, but those guys, so. those guys, those guys are 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 aging out. They're retiring. You know, and they're sure, being replaced. Sure. Because that used to be the pipeline for the airlines, is that those people would come out of the military and go work for the airlines. But yeah. now the airlines are getting a lot of their pilots from pilot training schools and things of that nature where they're learning on simulators. And they do real flying also, et cetera. But, you know, those the older guys who have, you know, been in the military and what have you, um, they're aging out. Mm. That's a subject for another day. But back to the 737 MAX 8. Um, you know, so the United States only had 50. That's nothing, really. Okay. Um, so pretty much, you know, like when it, when they were first grounded, I immediately thought of Southwest because Southwest's whole fleet of planes are 737s only. Okay. And I guess that's one of the dangers with having a single, you know, model line. Uh, I mean, there's pros to it, significant pros to it. They save a lot of money that way, but something like this happens. But they didn't have a lot. So what's out there now? 737, 700s, 600s, NGs, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, interesting uh, Interesting stuff. Uh, needless to say... Uh, the the wife and I are going to be plane bound this Friday, and so as the second 737 came crashing down in six months, <laughs> and knowing how popular it was, I said, "Oh God, knowing my luck, we're gonna get onto that plane and uh, yeah, pull the pamphlet out of the back of the seat like you had said and see that uh, we are now chartering a 737-800 Max, and that whole flight would be very very uncomfortable to say the least." Uh, but we won't have to go through that now that they've been grounded. Uh, but yeah, that would have been a, that would have been an interesting an interesting position to be in. Well, you know this this you can let your wife know that I, I was preempted 
by the president because that day I planned on texting you and letting you know that if you had any future plans to fly, uh, to uh, stay away from the Max 8. Not because, okay, that I believe there's something inherently wrong with the, with the plane, but just because that it will probably cause some uh, unnecessary anxiety. Uh, <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but the fact that there has been no incidents in the two years since the plane came to the market in the United States with U.S. pilots that have been filed with the FAA, I know there's some talk about there being some underground complaints, um, but to me, what that gives me confidence is that the majority of them, or, or what have you, most of them are aware of, if they ever experienced this pitching, um, that the fix for that is the same thing as in other versions that don't have this uh, MCAS system. But if you have a elevator that gets stuck in the, in the up position and it's forcing the plane down, this is how you, you know, get around it. Yeah. So it's the same exact fix. If the software or the sensor goes bad and it starts pitching the nose down, this is what you do. Now, the only caveat to that, and I guess this is to be determined, is whether or not that when this happened on those two crashes, it was that it was it was not enough time for them to uh, initiate the fix, you know, corrective action, or they didn't know what the corrective action was. That has to be determined, or a combination thereof. Um, we don't know the answer to that. That's an unknown. Hmm. Okay. Well, more more to be revealed, I suppose. More, more to, be, to revealed. be revealed. We'll we'll have to see. You'll have to uh, keep keep close contact with your pilot and aviation friends as things unfold. Yep. Uh, so we're gonna flow, and actually, so the next little bit that we have to cover before our topic actually is kind of a nice segue into the topic. So we'll hit theme number two on this show. Mr. Producer, Mr. Producer. Yes, sir. I think there's one other piece, important piece of information that I should share um, that is important before we just finish on that previous topic because yeah, yeah. We're, we're going to hear a lot in the coming days and weeks and months, um, you know, because it's it's news and it sells and, you know, and the news programs are going to, you know, embellish and, and raise fear and anxiety. Um, sure. But this, you're going to hear a lot about this MCAS system. And the MCAS system came about because, first of all, the airlines wanted a larger 737. Okay, hey, they said, okay. we need to add more seats, i.e. money. So the airline, the Boeing says, okay, we can stretch the fuselage, but it's going to require bigger engines. Okay? And I don't know if you know, but the 737 sits kind of very low to the ground. Okay? And next time you see one, okay, look at the engine, and you'll notice that the bottom of the engine is kind of flat. So it has this almost half moon shape and then a flat. Bottom. Okay. All right. And they and it's built like that because they're very low to the ground. Sure. So the Max models, because they had they required larger engines, 
they had to move them closer to the fuselage, okay, and that obviously changes the whole aerodynamics of the plane. Right. Okay. And because they're much more powerful engines, when they when they you know rotate up to take off and they power up, you know, if the the whole the whole takeoff process, the the, the rotation, the power, makes the plane come up even more. Okay. And so okay. the FAA told them, well, that can't be. That you you know you got to put something to prevent that from happening. And so they put in this NCAS system. So if the, if the plane rotated past a certain amount which would cause it to stall, and trust me, on takeoff, that's the worst time that you would want to stall. Pitch the nose down. But I think what's happening is that it's either the center is bad or it's reading the pitch, you know, reading more of a pitch than there actually is, and so it's pitching the nose down and, and surprising the hell out of the pilots. Huh. Okay. okay. And... So I just wanted to throw that out there to say that, you know, they didn't just come up with this system on their own. Hey, let's put that in there. And, you know, no, they, in order to make the type of aircraft the airlines wanted and to counterbalance the new aerodynamics and the, you know, the negative reaction of those aerodynamics on the aircraft and the FAA saying, well, no, we're not going to certify it if it's going to be pitching up like that. You need to put something in there that's going to prevent that or, you know, and so they put this system in there. And so that's where we're at. What do you mean I'm not an expert? Thank you for the added details. That that's uh that that's interesting, yeah. And so I guess with planes and the engineering, it's a very um it's a very well balanced act. And so like you said, if engines have to be moved closer to the fuselage further away, whatever the case may be, then a lot of other things can you know, there's residual impact to that. Right. Um, so yeah, that's that's good to know. That's good to know. So we'll move we'll move right along. We're gonna move into uh, our little NFL bit. So free agency began and was off to a roaring start last week uh, as teams plunged in with their cap space to try and improve their teams um, on the uh, the the eve, so to speak, the month eve of the draft. And so you've got three teams that you need to track, but a couple of them uh, that will say two specifically, your New York uh, teams made some rather big moves, one in acquisitions and the other in shipping, uh, shipping all-star talent off. What do you make of the moves so far with your teams this free agency? Um, I like the moves that the New York Jets made inquiring uh, Le'Veon Bell. I think that's going to okay. help them. Um I don't know what the New York football giants are thinking. I really okay. don't. Um, because I just don't know what they're doing. So uh, at some point it seems like they're dumping salaries, right? And like looking towards the future. Um, and another point, it seems like they're doing the opposite. So it's a very upset, upsetting time in the in the for my New York uh, New York brethren, uh, trying to figure out what the New York Football Giants are doing, trading away Odell Beckham, trading away Olivia, uh, uh, whatever his name is Vernon. Um, yep. And did they get? Um, who did they get returned for Vernon? Was that the offensive lineman? I believe so. Yes. All right. 
And why would Cleveland? So, yes. Why would Cleveland trade an offensive lineman when they got a, a rookie, you know, a young quarterback that they need to protect? Is also mysterious. It is mysterious. What, what What are you feeling about the return? I guess it's impossible to know until you see who the team drafts and and who they pan out to be. But just um, you know, if you had to just put on your guessing hat. How do you feel about the return you all got for Odell Beckham Jr. with a, a first-rounder and a third-rounder and a, a relative, you know, an above-average to, to really good safety from Cleveland in return for Odell Beckham? Uh, the players they got are okay. Um, remember, it's all the reason. All depends on why you're getting rid of the players. So if they, you know, we want to just dump the salary. We don't want this guy anymore. Then you kind of take what you get, right? But the but and you try and get the draft picks too. But the draft picks mean nothing unless you can convert them into right. players that that are going right. to be cornerstone players. Um, so what, that's a wait and see thing. But I, I, it's hard to tell if they're a win now or we're planning for the future. That's what's got people kind of in an uproar. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I would have to say, you know. Uh, Letting is kind of a loose term, but letting Landon Collins walk, um, you know, a Pro Bowl caliber safety, um, you know, in the in the beginning of the prime of his career and then trading Odell Beckham Jr. for draft picks and then getting, you know, a safety, you know, lesser than Collins back in return, presumably to fill the spot that you just lost um, feels like a team that is looking to rebuild because Landon Collins was going to require big money. Odell Beckham Jr. had just been signed to big money. And so kind of letting those two contracts walk. Also, what I'm hearing is that your Giants have huge interest in Kyler Murray. And if they were somehow able to maneuver themselves to draft Kyler Murray, that would spell the end for Manning. And the last thing they want is to try and have a rookie quarterback dealing with a personality like Odell Beckham, who can be hard for quarterbacks to deal with. I, you know, I don't, I don't follow the New York media too much, but those are some of the things I was hearing coming out of the, the New York camp, uh, how they were feeling about those situations. So I don't know. That all, yeah, that, that all makes sense. So we'll have to, you know, that that's wait and see too. Whenever it's hard to, like you said, it's hard to, Say, hey, you know, Khalil Mack, the Raiders traded Khalil Mack for two straight years of first rounders and a third rounder. And, you know, and how could you trade this, the best pass rusher in the NFL for draft picks? And it's, well, you can't fairly judge that trade until you see who those two first rounders turn out to be. Exactly. So that's another, that's another waiting game as well. All right. Well, I think that about covers that. I guess, lastly, you have uh, your eyes set on any particular player in the draft for your Giants who are on the clock at number six? Um, they first and foremost need to solidify their offensive line. Otherwise, they're okay. running back. And I thought everything was going to be based on Saquon Barkley. Because, should remember, be. the shelf life of the running back is, let's say, five to six years of yeah. elite play. Right. Okay, so if you're going to be rebuilding, I mean, what's the rebuilding timeline here before this guy is now on the downside of his elite play? Still may be very, very good, but he's not going to be performing at the elite level like he did last year. Right. So that's, to, you know, still to be determined. 
Okay. All right. Well, good. Good then. We'll see. We'll see about them drafting a, an offensive tackle for you or something like that. Yep. Yep. Uh, anyway, but that segues right into our topic. Uh, we've kept you all on the edge of your seat long enough. We can finally reveal the topic to you all. Uh, I'll let I'll let the host hit you with it. What are we going to be talking about today? It's a substance use slash abuse versus sports. All right, all right, yeah. I, I think at the beginning of the show, I was saying I don't I don't think other than making references here or there, talking about it in the pre-topic part of our show, uh, that we've ever had a full topic on it. No, we have talked about it just you know in snippets here and there as different news have come out regarding different players over the years, but we haven't really done a topic on it. So what kind of spurred this, and I'll use this particular guy as the backdrop for this topic, because I think his experience covers the whole gamut of the experience. I'm talking about about Randy Gregory, excuse me, who was a who is a defensive end, was drafted by the Cowboys in 2015. And when they drafted him, they knew that he had, quote-unquote, issues with marijuana use. He had tested positive at the Combine and had also tested positive on occasion, a couple of occasions during his last season or thereabouts at, at Nebraska. So... As he got into his NFL career, those things started to resurface. He started to test positive, again, for marijuana, all the way to the point in terms of the number of failed drug tests that he ended up getting suspended for a full year. Okay. That was at the end of the 2016 season. He got suspended in December of 2016 for the remainder, for the, for the four year. And... He spent that whole year, it turned out to be, before he got reinstated, uh, about 19, 20 months. During that time, if you want to continue to to have an NFL football career, you are now in their program, so to speak. And even though you are suspended, you have to still fulfill all the obligations of the program. Included in that is a significant amount of drug testing which he passed all of his drug tests during that time that he was suspended uh, to the point that he was uh, reinstated in May or June of 2018 and from that played the entire 2018 season with the Cowboys only to have, I don't know, was it about been a month now? Um, Just that, about, yeah, since that yeah. Instagram thing came out, yep. No, that's David Irving. We'll talk about him. Oh, I see um, what you're saying. Okay. Only to have about a month ago, news come out that he was being suspended indefinitely again that's by right. the league. Um, now, the only thing they didn't say was whether or not it was for a failed drug test or, you know, non, you know, some type of participation violation, you know, like missed a meeting or whatever, something like that, or, um, you know, failed to show up for a test. Um. So he's now suspended indefinitely. One of the things that came out during his initial suspension, when he was suspended for the whole year, was that he did not use marijuana. This is all that was said now, so 
Um, he was not using marijuana for recreational purposes. He was using marijuana to deal with mental health issues, which were undiagnosed, meaning he was never professionally seen and diagnosed. He didn't know what the hell was going on. All he knew was that smoking marijuana helped it. That's right. all that he knew. Whatever was going on with him, all he knew was that smoking weed helped deal with that. And that's one of the things that was uncovered during this whole process. And so one of the people kept asking, well, you know, why are the Cowboys sticking with him now? They keep giving him chances because they believed and they knew and they believed that it was more a medical issue than a I just like smoking weed issue. Follow me? Okay. Yeah. So when he was finally interviewed and was allowed to talk to the press, he spoke about that and and talked about how, you know, now that he's aware of, you know, what's going on with him, you know, he can choose other options, other methods, other means to deal with it rather than using marijuana. Okay. If he wants to play in the NFL, that's, you know, that's a caveat because, and we'll get into that, you know, that's the NFL rules. So if you want to play in the NFL, you have to find another means that's acceptable to deal with whatever is going on with you uh, in order to maintain your career in the NFL. And, you know, he also said that he, he did not believe that the NFL's drug policy as currently constituted um, is designed to deal with mental health issues um, like his and how people are dealing with them, whether in a negative way, positive way, alternative way, what have you. Um, Okay. That's just from his personal experience. And when I first heard that, my ears perked up because I was like, hmm, that's a very interesting comment. Um, Now, obviously, I've had to try and work to separate my bias, my emotions right. from from this, because, you know, I'm an avid Cowboy fan. Um, of course. I wanted Randy Gregory back on the field so bad, um, and I was pleased as a person in the field with his success at uh, getting over this hump into recovery and being able to maintain his recovery and continue on with his football career. So when I heard that he would, had been suspended, um, as a fan of the Cowboys, it hits you one way. But as a person in the field, it hits you another way. Sure. Um, and that when I say as a person in the field, it hits you another way, that other way is twofold because – you have compassion for the person, and then you have the acknowledgement and understanding of how, you know, that recovery is a, an ongoing process, and sometimes relapse is a part of that process, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So this got me to brooding and thinking, you know, like what is this, you know, what really is this NFL? And we're just using the NFL because they have the most prominent policy. Um you know, it seems like when NBA players get, you know, uh, drug violations, like you don't hear you hear about it for a couple of days, and you don't hear about it anymore. Sure, sure, yeah. It's it's, it's the football players that are in the news twenty four seven. So, 
the NFL drug policy, you know, I said, let me check this policy out. Well, it's 44 damn pages, first of all. <laughs> That's an intense policy right there, huh? Yeah. Wow. And it's 44 pages. And, of course, because, you know, it's got a, at the NFL Players Association, the union aspect of it. So it's got to, you know, cover different parts that are agreed upon in the bargaining agreement and all of that stuff. Right. But suffice all that to say, um, my, you know, summary reading of it, there's some parts I read word for word, other parts I just skimmed through. Um, I want to give myself a headache. There's an enforcement part and the treatment part. Okay? The treatment part is very robust, surprisingly to say. That was one of the things that surprised me when I started reading it. It's very robust. Lots of things are in there to, to, to help and work with the person through whatever issues they may have. Um, and, you know, as you, you and I are aware, you know, there's various steps and levels based on your transgressions and how often you've been a, a violator. You know what I'm saying? Right, stage, right, right. With stage three being the most severe. But I have to say, just looking at it fairly, um, with my own eyes and my own experience and opinion, it it leans more on the punitive side. And that's where I'm I'm like I'm stuck. I really am stuck because I understand the punitive the necessity of the punitive side. I understand that. Um, sure. I understand why it needs to be present. Um, but I think if they tweaked it a little bit, um, the punitive side wouldn't be the side that seems to rule publicly and rule in the eyes and hearts and minds of fans. Because what do we always hear about? So-and-so has been suspended for violating the, the, the NFL drug policy. That's all you ever hear. Right. You don't hear you don't hear any backdrop. Um, yes, of course, there's a confidentiality, quote unquote. Because um, if, so, yeah, if it's so could, confidential, how the hell do we find out? Exactly. And to your point, like, yeah, you could speak to some of the qualifying background, uh, you know, very loosely or candidly or vaguely. You don't have to disclose uh, every diagnosis this individual has in the DSM. But you could say, yeah, uh, instead of just that, oh, someone so-and-so has been suspended for violating whatever policy they might be getting um, suspended for, whatever uh, policy that they violated, that that could still very easily be disclosed to folks as, you know, and, and the the background behind this is that it's come out that so-and-so has been struggling with some sort of um, mental health issue if you wanted to be very loose about it or vague about it or um, – you know, uh, personal, personal. You could use the term personal struggles. That's also very, you know, vague enough. Um, but yeah, instead of just making it sound like, oh, basically, it's just another criminal. You know, doing doing criminal things. Yeah, they. Um, I think the biggest issue most people have is that. I think being on a professional sports team is is very different than the regular workplace. So in the regular workplace, if you know, let's say if your employer as 
as a part of the workplace environment does testing, and let's say you come up positive, and the employer offer, you know, says, well, you know, based on your history, let's say you've, if you've just, is this the first time, these are the things you can do, continue to be able to work and blah, 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 but if it's like the third, fourth time, Maybe you have to. Your only option is to go into some kind of intervention, treatment, or what have you. You can't work until that's completed. Okay, um, that's understandable because that, it's a different workplace than a team workplace. You know, like a, like a sports team. And so, I think the biggest problem people have with the, especially with the NFL, is that these guys are banned from the facilities. Right. It's one thing to suspend them, say, because you're you're basically suspending them without pay, so you're not going to get paid, while you know, and you're gonna you're gonna have to miss games. But they can't they can't unless they're going to see the doctor in regards to their substance abuse issues. Sure. Yeah, they're not what, even allowed on the premises. They they're not allowed on the premises. You can go see the doctor when your session's over. You have to leave immediately. Right. So you can't see the trainer, you can't go work out with your teammates and all that stuff. So all of the peer support aspect of it is gone. And so they're thinking major. Their thinking is I I don't know what their thinking is, but uh, I'm I'm surmising that I wonder if they're thinking that well, you'll have to establish that outside in the outside treatment community. And that's ridiculous to me. Now, let's go back to Randy Gregory real quick because Randy Gregory, you know, participated in the program, the NFL's program, did very well in the program, you know, and and did all kinds of things with his life off the field because he was gone from football, wasn't allowed to be at the Cowboys facilities, et cetera, et cetera. So it was almost like he was given the opportunity to organize his life first, worry about football second. So the fact that there's been some kind of relapse, um, I would be interested just as a person in the field and knowing, you know, what's the backstory to that? You're like, and when the season was over, you know, what happened? Because um, I was concerned about the off season. Okay. Um, but then on the other hand, I was like, okay, well, he can just continue to do what he was doing before he went back to football. Because football is your job. It's your profession. Um, different from the job he had while he was suspended, granted. But whatever those things you were doing to, to maintain your support, maintain your sobriety, etc., you would just continue to do those things in the off season. So what right. happened? I so bad want to know what happened. Um, but all you hear is the end result. He's being suspended. Um, is he being supported? If he's not, obviously, see me, I don't believe he's being supported because he can't, he can't go to the facility and be in the company of his peers, his teammates. You know, work, work is also someplace to go. Of course. Right. Unless, unless I can understand if your use has crossed over the line into abuse where it's now affecting your work, meaning you're not showing up, you're showing up, you're not showing up or you're showing up late to meetings. You're missing games, you're missing the playing, you're missing team functions, so on and so on and so on. Now right. now we have the ramifications of the addict manifesting themselves. 
So I get that if it was you know, if it's something like that, but that's that wasn't the case with Randy Gregory. At least to our knowledge. Yeah, no, and I actually heard from all accounts he had some teammates who, and you know, maybe they're just being good teammates. I don't know. I, we're not privy to inside information, so we just have to take people at their word. But some of his teammates were interviewed and went on record as to say he was actually a very good teammate. Right. So they were speaking to what type of person he was. He, he wasn't, you know, a jerk. You know, he seemed to be a good guy. Um which is, you know, fine and dandy. Um, but <clears throat> so it, it 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 allows it causes me to ask this question. Um, you know, what what is the NFL's ultimate goal with their drug policy? Is it Yeah, I was just going to ask you that exactly. What what yeah. what is their desired outcome? Are they just trying to be punitive, or do they desire to actually help uh, an individual who is dealing with a certain issue, right? But anyway, go ahead. I was going to ask the same question. Yeah, I I agree, and I I think I know what their answer would be, but their answer would be, hey, you know, we care about the player, and that's why we offer all these things over here on the left, you know, treatment related things, um, but we also care about the integrity of our game and blah, 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 so we have these enforcement provisions, and I get that. However, that that one thing sticks in my craw, which kind of makes that last statement not entirely supported, um, because the enforcement part is, the enforcement part should be the reluctant part. You know what I'm saying? Um, right. And how, well, how, how do you show that it's reluctant? And I said, well, even if we are forced, even if our hand is forced to protect the integrity of the game, um, that we have to suspend the player, suspend them without pay, we don't ban them from being around the team. We don't, like, cast them out into oblivion. Yes, they're in your program. They're talking to NFL people. They're talking to the team doctor only, um, et cetera, et cetera. But – and, and it also the policy also said that some member of the team management is allowed to call, make one phone call every two weeks to the player while they're be, while they're banned. Hmm. I say, wow, okay. None of that comes close to being able to come into the facility, see your teammates, get support from them, so on and so on and so on. So if they were to change that, and I believe the players should fight for that in the next bargaining agreement – if they would change that, then to me that then then their answer would hold water. But right now it's uh to me it's enforcement first, treatment second. That's just the way it reads to me. And I'm trying to be fair and I'm trying to be objective. Uh yeah, no, I I, I mean I would have to agree um, and I guess, you know, and it's a reality of trying to pick apart these situations to try and come to some sort of understanding of what, where the truth lies. But whenever you're dealing with, uh, we'll say an organization, a business, a business that like the NFL, which is a billion dollar industry, um, oftentimes money guides those decisions. 
uh, and this can be true of corporations on many levels, from the from the small sole proprietor running the cafe next door to you, all the way up to an industry like the NFL, which is a billion dollar industry. That money will guide the decisions, and so a lot of the NFL understands that because they're constantly in the public eye, um, that they are subject to the scrutiny of the public eye, and so wanting to respond to which decision or which pathway carries better optics uh, as far as your PR is concerned tends to be the lead versus what might be in the best interest for this individual. Right. Um, And and so I I believe that a lot of that does have to do with the bottom line. And so, you know, is the bottom line more important than whether or not this individual who might be a dime a dozen, there will be 20 more of them coming out in the draft this year. Um, You know, which is more important. And and I think if you, if you had that coveted truth serum that is talked about in recovery circles uh, at nauseum, ad nauseum, and it's very cliche, but if you could come up with that coveted truth serum and um, inject the maybe Goodell or some of the owners of the NFL, (laughs) Uh, they would tell you, I think, in a heartbeat that it's less about caring for the the ultimate outcome for this individual's life and more about uh, protecting the bottom line of what they have built, which has made so many people so wealthy over the years. Well, yeah, that's um, that's a true statement. Um, and, uh, you know, I get the position that they're in, but... I really hope that the uh the NFL Players Association really fights for a more well-rounded um policy. Sure. Um and we'll see. They they're one of the weakest unions in professional sports. And in the sport that has the largest revenue almost double what other cuz they're up for what 8 or 9 billion dollars. Mhm. Mhm. I think the NBA is at what three billion, and I think the Major League Baseball is I don't know between what five and six. Somewhere. Yeah, something around there. Yep. So the NFL reigns supreme. Yeah, so the other and thing they have that, for a long time. Right. the The other issue that's tied to this, of course, and this is also going to be coming down the pike in the NFL bargaining, uh, collective bargaining discussions is uh, marijuana in and of itself. Um, and wanting the, the players wanting to be able to use the marijuana for medicinal purposes. Um, I don't know how successful they're going to be with that because I think the NFL's position is that um, while it's still a uh, illegal under federal law, um, and they're, they're, under federal law, there's no medicinal exception um, that they're they're going to have a very hard time convincing uh, Roger Goodell and 30, 32, 30, 32 owners, mm-hmm. 32 owners to uh, modify that rule. And I think that ties to what you were just saying about, you know, there are other there are other things the NFL answers to public relations related and I'm not sure how well that would go over since it is still against federal law. And I right. don't even know I don't even know if um 
the medicinal marijuana that's you know, that they have, like that's in pill form, etc., if is even still allowable in terms of uh, I don't know. I have to research. I don't know the answer to that question whether or not, even though it exists, the medicinal you know, the the pill form. I forgot what it's called. Um, because that clients who are coming to our program who are using marijuana medicinally, the county policy is that they would have to change over to the pill um, that's available to use while they're in a program, because um, obviously they can't be walking around smoking uh, smoking blunts, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> in a drug treatment program, so um, they would have to take the, the the pill instead. And so whether or not the players can do the same and get the the benefits that they're looking for um, from the cannabis, um, I I don't know how that's going to play out. But so aside from that, the the extreme irony about that, the extreme irony, Mr. Producer, is that I, I know their hand is somewhat being forced because, hey, they're trying to make sure that they're not going to make something allowable in the NFL that's illegal under federal law and threaten right. their antitrust exemption. Okay, so I, I get that part 100%. But the fact that instead we'll prescribe all of these opiates and opioids, pain, pain relievers to the players, and instead, okay, which are known to be much more harmful to them um, long term, but I guess you know they're okay with that on some level. They must be because um, I don't hear them talking about alternatives. Um, and the other thing I don't hear about, and I don't know if this is like one of the dark secrets of the NFL, but you know how many players when they're done playing and the career is over are uh, addicted, not dependent. But addicted, meaning that they become strung out on this stuff, right? Because we don't hear about that that much. I don't see any documentaries and specials about that. But what I have heard is that the prescribing of that stuff—I mean, it's like them—it's like them reaching into a, a a garbage can. You know what I mean? Sure, sure, sure. Just, hey, hey, take as much as you need so you can go play. In the yeah, game. exactly. Right. Well, because again, and so what does that speak to, especially? You know, you always hear about the all-star treatment, right? So so the player that is going to net you 15 sacks a year might be getting different treatment than the player that nets you one sack a year. Uh, right. But all that said, so the garbage can thing, and you know, whatever you need to go out and play, well, especially if you're an all-star player and uh, you playing could be the difference between making the playoffs or uh, going bust or – uh, winning a game and being marketable for TV. You're, you're the all-star player. You're big for the franchise. If you're not playing, we're not going to sell as many tickets. This is all bottom line related stuff, you know? They have no problem, um, you know, offering them to take pain-killing injections. Um, so, you know, one of the questions I asked in our topic description is, you know, are they a bunch of hypocrites? And I think they are. I think they are. Because just because one is, quote-unquote, legally available doesn't make it better. I'm not a scientist, so I don't know. I'm just saying. Um, but it doesn't make it better. And does it mean that 
because it's available and they're using it to the extent that they are. And again, it's such a closely held, you know, like how the movie came out about the concussions in the NFL. Yes. You know, it needs to be documented about that, but, but you don't hear anyone talking about it. So, but I, you know, there's a part of my being that tells me it exists, but there's no one that, that you don't hear not too much about it, about the over-prescribing of these pain meds in, in a sport like that where these guys are in pain a lot. So what are they taking? What are they getting? And now there was a group of NFL players retired who were doing a roundtable. I forgot what it was called. Um, talking about their, you know, that they use the marijuana throughout their career. They just, you know, f- found ways through hook or crook to get around the tests. Um, right. But they said they couldn't have played without it. I've heard, um, yeah, I've heard several players in kind of uh, candid interviews uh, speak to the same thing. Yes, yeah. and and not even that they could, you know, that it would have been difficult to play without, but like literally like an impossibility. Like, right. oh no, my, my career would have been much, much shorter. Like there's no way I would have been able to manage that. Right. And we're certainly not advocating uh, for, for on behalf of marijuana um, at all. We're just saying that the reality is that players, and I'm not talking about Randy Gregory here, because remember, he was using for mental health reasons, but there are numerous players that do and would love to be able to use what they believe to be a substance that is less uh, damaging to them, that helps them manage their pain and other associated related issues, uh, much better than what is legally available and allowable under current NFL rules. Yep. So instead, if they get caught, okay, they get penalized. Um, and I don't know if there's a distinction. I didn't read this in the policy. If there's a distinction between, hey, I'm using this because of it helps me with my pain versus, yeah, I like just like smoking weed, you know. And I don't know if there's a distinction in terms of what the punishment see here we go again. <laughs> yeah, that's the yep. that's the NFL's fault exactly. Because exactly. we have been programmed right. to only see it that way because that's how they put it out. The punishment is whatever, you know, it is, regardless of why you're using it. Exactly. Yeah, it's very uh it's set in stone so to speak circumstances be damned, right? Like, this is just how it's written, and this is how it's going to be. That's that's so funny. Even after reading the policy to the extent that I did, or lack thereof, uh, that I, it still just comes out of my mouth as a punishment. <laughs> yeah, right? That Well, that's when you, when you don't, when you're not thinking about it, you know, and you're not trying to be politically correct, and you're just talking about it, well, that's what it is, because like you said, that is the canvas that they have painted it on. Right. It, it, that's how it's spoken about. That's how it's reported by ESPN, the, you know, the people who cover it for us. Uh, that's how the teams and the league office itself comes down on and implements it. It's just this kind of a authority that states, hey, uh, kind of regardless of A, B, and C, if you commit Act X, this is going to be the, the, the punishment. The punishment, right? And that's right, what right. it is. Right, there's no um, subtleties um, to it. 
Now, right. I, here's the thing. I did read in there, they, they make this, this statement, this caveat statement, um, as determined by the NFL's medical director. Okay? But, you know, obviously we don't know everything because they don't publicize everything. They, they kind of leak what they want leaked. But I'm presuming that means that the NFL medical director deems that, hey, you know, this was a legitimate reason or use or this qualifies under the exemption or whatever the case may be. That person can determine that. I'm just unaware of that ever being exercised in that way. Because short of someone just flat out, you know, saying, look, I just like uh, rolling the – you know, rolling the blunts and, you know, that's how I, you know, like how you like to slip on some wine after work. I like to smoke some weed after, you know, right. after, after the game or what have you, um, you know, short of somebody saying that, but if someone comes to them and says, look, you know, this really, really helps me with the pain that I feel or, you know, a chronic pain issue or whatever the case may be. Um, I'm unaware of any exemption like that ever being talked about. But that right. language and, is in there. Yeah, and which, by the way, this chronic pain, uh, you know, the 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 owners and the league and the big business that it is, <clears throat> uh, you know, there's a requisite to put on a hard helmet and run into people at full speed. You'd imagine that the employees that you have hired to do such a job might have such side effects. Yeah. So uh, when is the uh, next – do you know when the current agreement ends? Uh, I want to say the, ne- the the current CBA oh. is good through uh, – the, the early the early tw- 20s, the early 2020s. Yeah. Uh, I know that MLBs is 2021, uh, two years from now. I want to say the NBAs, I, I want to say they're all kind of coming up in, in close order with one another. Right. And again, if anyone reads the NFL's drug policy, they will come away saying, hey, you know what, the treatment side of it is very robust. I was shocked to find that out, that it is very robust. They do offer a lot. Um, and there's a section there that talks about, you know, who pays for it. And all it said was it's, you know, it's in accordance with the NFL players insurance policy, um, health insurance policy, something like that. Um, okay. But it's very robust. But my own personal opinion, if Roger Goodell were to call me up and ask me, I would say you got to change the, the banishment part from the facility. Got to change right, that. Right, yeah. Yeah, you got to have the peer support. Well, what I want to know is what do we do as OCG? What kind of letter do we formalize or what needs to be done to be the vendor, if you will, uh, for West Coast uh, NFL teams who fall into such a, uh, you know, the the letter of the policy and need treatment that, that we become the default vendor of the NFL for the NFC and AFC West? What what needs to be done to, to get us on the map there? Uh, I don't know. I've always thought about that, but it also <laughs> makes me laugh. It makes me laugh because it makes me think about, you know, when we, we used to get in the, in the daytop days uh, on the East Coast, 
when we would get some, you know, big muscle bound guys coming into treatment, you know what I mean? And uh, to a certain extent, they would you try, you know, they would use that to try and hide behind to, you know, keep people away from them. And yeah. of course, you know, me myself knowing that, you know, that wasn't going to happen. Um, and you, you could picture football players being the same way, trying to trying to either indirectly or directly intimidate, you know, with their size to say they don't even don't even think about coming at me and asking me questions or what have you. Um, and then to see the metamorphosis of, uh, you know, getting beyond that and getting down to the actual nitty gritty of who you are, because hey, I, I don't. We always say. You know, I, I don't care where you come from and what you're doing. Um, not everybody can survive going through a residential treatment program because we ask you to do something. All, most programs that I know ask you to do something that is inherently, inherently very difficult for human beings to do, and that's to take an honest, forthright, hard look at oneself without filters, aided by other people who, in theory, don't give a rat's ass about you, which is a good thing because then they can be brutally honest with you. Right. And then they'll start to care about you. So not many people are down for that. You know, how many people do you know over the last however many years, 20 years, whatever, that, you know, that have uttered the famous words, man, I'm not doing this. Oh yeah, well that I mean, come on now. Uh we hear that. <laughs> I just I couldn't keep count. I couldn't keep count. <laughs> oh no. I could not keep count of that. So uh yeah, I don't know who they're getting as I was reading the policy, uh, those questions that come to mind like, you know, who do they get their information from? Is it purely medical? Or do they reach into the field and 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 speak to you know prominent people in the field um, about you know, to help craft their policy? I would hope that they do. I can understand an MD being over, you know, what I mean, being over the uh, the program and all of that good stuff. Um, but in terms of the nuts and bolts of the policy, did they seek mm-hmm. out you know program advice, program people? Right. Uh, interesting stuff. Inter- interesting stuff, indeed. So I think what we ended up with and learned is that uh, they're a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's the bottom line. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Say one thing, but then have policies embedded that, that lead you directly to another. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, man. Yep, yep. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. That's all I, that's all I got, sir, on the topic. Oh no, that sounds good to me. I mean, we we went into it. I, I mean, everybody who's been listening for a long time knows we're we're avid sports fans, and so it was kind of a refreshing topic. Good to talk about uh, recovery as it pertains to things outside of the walls with within uh, what we work in and the branches that we um, explore here uh, in the treatment side of things with the client base that we have. 
um, and, and we've always kind of mentioned here and there, if, if a story ever comes up about an athlete being in a particular situation that involves substance abuse, uh, but to have a topic on it was pretty good. So well, I think we, we covered it Mr. well. Mr. Producer, before we close out, let's quickly just talk about David Irving. Because so oh, David yeah, yeah. Irving, David Irving is another Dallas Cowboy defensive lineman who has been actively active in getting suspended on and off for various things um, having to do with substance use slash abuse, mm-hmm. and he was suspended last year for four games, and then. He never played, he didn't play a game the whole season, but he wasn't suspended for the whole season. He was having other personal-related issues. And now the season's over, and it comes out that he's going to be suspended again for the upcoming, you know, four games of the upcoming season for another violation of NFL drug policy. So a couple of weeks ago, he puts on his Instagram a video of him. Now, I only saw a small clip, but word on the street is that it's a much longer clip where he's really – talking at length about why he's doing what he's doing. But the clip I saw was of him smoking weed and basically saying, you know, this is what he prefers to do. This is what he wants to do right now. So, you know, F U N F L. And that's all fine and dandy. And, hey, more power to you. Uh, my, uh, my only comment to him was about, well, w- what about what you plan to do next? Is that, is that the image you want out there to the world of you smoking weed? in that fashion while you're giving the finger to the NFL. If you're going to do that, just retire, right? Just retire and go about your business. Right. So, and and he has a, he has a young child, which has been the source and cause of a lot of his, you know, personal upset, you know, the ongoing custody battle, all that stuff. And the Cowboys have been very supportive of him. So, you know, I'm not sure what this this is about in, entirely, but the manner in which he handled it, in my opinion, was uh, inappropriate. But he wants to smoke weed, which is absolutely fine. If that's what you want to do. Go ahead and do it. Okay. Sure. Um, and so he's taking a stand about why he wants to smoke it, why he should be allowed to smoke it, and the whole nine yards. Um, so he's taking the ultimate stand by saying, you know what, I'm choosing not to play in the NFL. Instead, I'm choosing whatever life I'm going to live and be able to smoke weed. So to me, that's fine. If that's sure. your choice. Um, but to me, that's vastly, vastly different than Randy Gregory. Oh yeah, no, yeah, completely, yeah. completely different. Uh, with the background that leads up to it and everything else. Right, right. All right, interesting stuff. Well, yeah, we'll uh, we will chat again uh, as per usual. I will. You will be receiving some photos from me a couple of days from now from airports and airplanes that uh, will hopefully be taking us safely to our destinations. Do you know what you're flying uh, on? I don't. It's so. It's uh. It's actually multiple flights. So we we booked a trip to visit some of Anna's family and and some other places, uh, but they're all regional flights. So it, we'll, we'll be doing a flight from from here to Phoenix, from Phoenix to San Diego, and from San Diego to Austin, and ultimately we'll be Austin 
back home. So that's the longest leg, uh, Austin back home. But all the others, those are quick little one and a half, one hour, one and a half hour flights. So I imagine small little, uh, what what did you call them before? Puddle puddle jumpers? No, no. What what airline are you on? Uh, uh, we are Alaska and United for a uh, for the. I think for all of the legs except for one, one of the legs is a uh, frontier. So the fun little planes you see in the air with all the animals painted on them, which doesn't make me feel too good. But hey, uh, we had to, we had to get a deal uh, to make sure we could afford making this happen. So right, yeah, you most likely you know be on seven thirty sevens. That's good to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that that's that's exactly right. They're the ones that take you for you know the. It's nothing like a transatlantic or anything like that right or across the country uh these are all just kind of the the little the little short little distances so but but that's part of the reason why the airlines said to boeing hey we want a larger 737 because they want to be able to go from san francisco to new york to compete with you know the the jet blue or what have you with, yeah. with airbus a320 um right. so um yeah they can they that's why the max 8 and the max 9 came into being Sure, sure. That was their purpose, yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Maybe maybe you'll get a little itinerary of of planes of aircraft this evening, and then pictures on on Friday, and you tell me if you can notice any cracks in the wing from the photos okay. I send you. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. All right, folks. Well, yeah. Thank you all again for for listening. Whoever was out there listening, uh, you know, maybe we will get a show here in the not so distant future where we get back to a little uh, where we can throw a little recovery sport time uh, segment on there uh, for the folks who want to call in. But again, the continued support is always always. Uh, appreciated for those who listen live or those who listen to the archives. I think this will be a good one for you all. Um, as always, everybody who, who did listen or who will listen to this, we wish you all uh, a nice, safe, and productive couple of weeks here until we get at it again and a fun and safe couple of weekends.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. So we should.